Let me ask you a question. Where were you in March of 2020? I was in Phoenix, Arizona, following my favorite baseball team during their spring training. After attending maybe one or two games, my son-in-law walked up to me and said, Hey, you heard that spring training's canceled, right? I thought he was pulling my leg. Turns out he wasn't. That night, he asked me, Have you heard of Dr. Mike Osterholm? He's an expert on infectious diseases from the University of Minnesota. He's on the Joe Rogan podcast. Unfortunately, I didn't know Dr. Mike at that point. So all of us listened intently to Dr. Osterholm on Joe Rogan's podcast that night, and I have to admit, I became a big fan. Since then, I've listened to every single one of Dr. Osterholm's podcast, The Osterholm Update, 133 episodes to be exact. Mike and his team have kept me and my family safe during the COVID-19 pandemic. I trust him. He's a veteran public health epidemiologist, and he really, really knows his stuff. Plus, plus, Mike and his team run the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, that's abbreviated CIDRAP, C-I-D-R-A-P, at U of M. CIDRAP's a global leader in addressing public health preparedness and the responses for emerging infectious diseases that we see coming out of our federal government. They have a great website. You should check it out. You can find them at sidrap.umn.edu. Once again, that's sidrap, C-I-D-R-A-P, at umn.edu. Protect yourself and your family. Listen. Read. Learn from Dr. O and his team like I have. Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode 13 of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. Happy September 2023. I have to admit, I'm a bit sad about the start of this September. No, it's not because my favorite baseball team is out of the pennant race. As we always say, there's there's always next year, right? But I'm a bit sad because for many of my 43 years as a professional educator, the start of September meant that a new school year was starting. And as a college professor for 23 of those years, a new school year meant that I was going to be meeting a bunch of new students. And I love meeting new people. However, the reality of my retirement at the end of this academic year is now starting to set in. This will be my last September as a professor. Can you think about that? Wow, I can't. My last one, my last September. So although I'm happy, I'm also sad. However, the podcast, this podcast and the work of the 1795 group will keep going on 
will get even stronger once I retire. Let me tell you several things that are happening in September of 2023. This is a big month for us. First, we'll send out our first email newsletter. If you're on our email list, you should get it by Wednesday, September 13th. Be on the lookout for it. It's completely free. Our email newsletter is a bit different than most. It will contain research updates, best practices in the field, interesting articles, and important announcements. To ensure that you get it, please go to our website and sign up today. It takes maybe five seconds of your time. And all we need is your first name and, and your email address. That's pretty easy. So in return for five seconds of your time, I'm willing to give you a resource guide of your choice. That's one of 12. They're on our products page on our website. That's a $5 value. We sell them for $5. So I don't know what the rate of pay is per hour for you, but I know that getting a free resource guide of your choice is a great return on your investment for five seconds of your time. Please do it today. Second, I'm very, very happy that you chose to listen to this podcast. My special guest, Patrick Johnston, is the Vice President of Community Investments of the Greater Toledo Community Foundation. He and I will be talking about this topic, common errors that people make when writing grant applications or proposals. He's seen a lot. So if you care about getting money for your organization or if you want to improve your grant writing knowledge and skills, then listen carefully to what he's about to say. Certainly don't make the same mistakes that he talks about. Third, to help you not make those same mistakes, we're going to offer a virtual workshop on how to avoid making those same mistakes. It's on Sunday evening, September 24th. That's Sunday evening, September 24th, from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m., only 90 minutes. It's a virtual workshop, so you can learn, listen, and participate from the comfort and convenience of your home. Mr. Dwayne Heron from Marietta, Georgia, and I will be leading this between us. We have more than, I think, $20, 25000000 million in grant awards. Doesn't count the ones we've missed on. So we have, you're in good hands. Put it simply, you're in good hands. Being that the workshop is virtual, as I said, you can participate from the comfort and convenience of your home, and it's only $9 to register. And five of that $9 goes to charity. Five of that $9 goes to the World Central Kitchen. You can look them up. It's a charity that I have given to myself in the recent past. That leaves $4, and that'll be used to help us cover the expenses of putting on the workshop, such as emailing you a nice color certificate of completion after you complete it. So register today on our website under events. Fourth and last, but certainly not least, by the end of September 2023, you'll be able to purchase and participate in online courses on our website. We are starting by offering just two. We're starting very small. And both courses are focused on a very important need that we have in society, and that's for people to do advanced care planning. Two nurses on our team have helped me, two hospice nurses, Debbie Jackson and Kimberly Schmidt. They're veteran hospice nurses. They have helped me design these courses. One is for members of the public, and one course is for those who, are, who will be working or are working 
in healthcare with patients. Both courses will be available on Thinkific. That's an online software platform that facilitates your learning of new knowledge and new skills. I strongly recommend, please, please, share these courses with older relatives. Sit down if you're in young adulthood, sit down with your parents, sit down with your grandparents, your aunts and uncles. Make your wishes known and make their wishes known to all and share your documents. Please take those courses and learn how to do it. Okay, let's talk about our special guest today. Our guest has been waiting inside the studio for me. I've been waving to him through the little window. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, he's waving back and smiling at me. He's always smiling. On this episode, my special guest, as I said, is Patrick Johnston. And he and I are going to explore this topic, common errors that people make when writing grant proposals. Patrick is employed by the Greater Toledo Community Foundation, and this foundation manages more than 900 individual funds with assets of approximately $320 million. They average $17 million in grants every year. I didn't know that. Patrick received his Bachelor of Science degree in journalism from Bowling Green State University, Go Falcons, and a Master of Arts degree from the University of Kentucky. Prior to his employment at the Greater Toledo Community Foundation of Toledo, he was a grants developer at Owens Community College. And he also gained valuable experience in program development while at the National Park Service, the Metro Parks of Toledo area, and the Maumee Valley Heritage Corridor. Patrick was named Senior Program Officer at the Greater Toledo Community Foundation in June 2019 and has been with the foundation since 2014. In April of 2020, he was promoted to his current title, Vice President of Community Investments. Suffice it to say, he has seen many grant applications and many grant proposals here he is, Mr. Patrick Johnston. I hope that you benefit from the podcast. Well, hello, everyone. This is episode 13 of Grassroots Health. Happy September to all of you. And we're here today with a very special guest. He's a good friend of mine, I guess an old friend. I don't, I don't think he's that old. Maybe we should say he's been a friend a long time. Patrick Johnston. Patrick is the Vice President of Community Investments for the Greater Toledo Community Foundation. I've been waving to him through the little window <laughs> in the studio. How are you, Pat? I am doing well. How have you been? I've been fine. And we're going to talk about the most common errors that you've seen in especially nonprofit grants, because that's what the Community Foundation deals with, most common errors made when writing grants. So we've met a couple times prior to this when I was on the other side of your conference room table and was writing grant applications to be reviewed. So let's talk about the foundation, what it does um, what you do there, what your title is, how long have you been there, that kind of thing. Yeah, so if you can believe it, I'm coming up on my 10-year anniversary with the foundation. Wow. 
Time flies, uh, and believe it or not, they uh, did just fine with me for four decades before I got here. So the foundation itself is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Five uh, zero, wow, that's yeah, a long time. It, it is, and because we're a place-based foundation and we grow with the community, our impact has grown steadily over those years. We are uh, a the largest funder in the area, and we really do serve a place. Our place is Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan. And what we do is we offer a, a way for individuals, families, or corporations to uh, enhance their philanthropy and their charity throughout our community. So Folks of um, great means as well as modest means will come to us and start a fund at the foundation. And when they start that fund, they donate the money to the foundation and we create a, a legal document called a fund agreement. Uh, and that lays out how those dollars are to be used, um, what the relationship will be with the donor, you know, their priorities. Do they want to fund education? Do they want to fund environmental work? We, we lay all that out in the fund agreement. And really what is at the core of that is our geography. So those are people that live here. Uh, they are people that work here. They are corporations that are here. Uh, mostly they fund nonprofits that are here, but it doesn't have to be a local nonprofit that they fund. So over the years, we have gathered these different funds. Right now, we're right at a thousand different named funds. Some of those are scholarships. Some of those are field of interest funds. And as we've grown older, some of our donors uh, have grown older and some of them have, have passed away. But those dollars remain here. They were donated to the foundation to benefit our community. So the staff at the foundation, in addition to dealing with uh, and serving those donors, we carry on what they intended to do with those resources. So we steward those into the future perpetually. My job is to, um, to oversee what we call our program department. So anything that has a competitive grant process where we're actually asking nonprofits to submit applications um, to us for review, we then have volunteer committees that review all of those and make recommendations to our board of trustees on which should be funded. All of that work falls under the program department. So that that's what me and my team do with our day. So if you're a donor and maybe you live in Northwest Ohio, you probably live in Northwest Ohio, and you want to leave a legacy, uh, you want that either to be a scholarship or a grant, Maybe you've got a little money, maybe modest means. They should call you? They should call the foundation for sure. Uh, we have a, a department here called the Philanthropic Services Department, a, a great group of folks over there, three in total. And they know all the different types of funds that you can set up, um, five or six different fund types. And they'll help you figure out which one is right for what you want um, you know, and, and how to set that up. So. Some folks will, will also leave money in their will as a legacy, and they'll leave it to, sometimes it's to their favorite nonprofit. And they'll say, after we're mm -hmm. gone, we want the money to stay with the foundation. And every year we want uh, some of that money to be sent directly to the nonprofit of their choice. So those organizations don't have to do anything. They just receive a check in the mail, um, 
usually about three months into the year, we process those. Uh, so there's different levels of involvement. Uh, but yeah, we, we have a staff of 19 professionals here uh, between the philanthropic services, the program and the finance departments, and then of course, communications. Yeah, that's very good, 19 people. So Patrick, let me ask you, how would somebody call these people? Like what's the phone number or what's the email address they should contact? And so the, the best place to go to start out is, is our website, um, toledocf.org. Uh, our, our phone number there, as well as our contact information for everybody on staff, uh, is right there. We put a, a good amount of information on, on our website uh, so that folks can get to where they need to go, and depending on what the question is. If it's a nonprofit that has a question about a grant, uh, then they would reach out to someone in my department. Um, if it's a, a donor that's looking to set up a fund, they would, they'd be funneled to another department. Well, thank you for that nice overview of the foundation and what you do. Let's get to the topic today. This is from the grantor or grantees, I should say, potential grantees, those that write grants. And so if you're listening today, you're, you're concerned about maybe making sure you're the best grant writer you can be. Uh, you don't want to make the same mistakes. We don't want you to make the same mistakes that, that Patrick has seen. So let's talk about those most common errors when writing a nonprofit grant. I know you've seen a lot of them, and you've even seen some of mine, right? So every year, the most common error that, that I know of is just not following instructions. You just don't follow instructions. So if the, if the funder, if the grantor says we want a logic model and you don't do it, you haven't followed instructions. If they say turn it in by paper clips and you use staples instead, <laughs> you haven't followed directions. So tell me what you've seen about following instructions, Patrick. That, that is the most important thing, the first thing that everybody should be doing, figuring out what the requirements are and, and following the instructions. I've heard a lot of horror stories about, you know, having to submit things in triplicate or duplicate and how you bind those together. Luckily, now we're in a day and age where most, not all, but most funders have transitioned to uh, online digital applications. So uh, you don't have to worry about getting the right font. It just picks the font for you. So luckily, we're in a, a time now where you can avoid some of those uh, more basic mistakes. Where I see folks getting tripped up with us and following instructions, a lot of times it's related to their attachments. And we have to do a certain amount of due diligence to make sure that we are granting to eligible nonprofits, um, organizations that can receive our money. We are also a public charity and we have to make sure that we maintain our charitable status. So we have rules to follow. So we have a series of of attachments that we require folks to submit. And you know, one easy example of that is financial information. And we use that during our review uh, and we ask for specific financials for specific purposes. Sometimes we will have folks that submit a, a project budget and then they'll also submit the project budget as their operating budget. Uh, those mm -hmm. are, are two different things. So. Make sure that you read the guidelines so you know exactly what the funder is asking for. And then if you're at all unclear, reach out to them. Uh, most funders are pretty good about getting back to you. They would expect that you would ask your questions early on in the process, uh, but we're, we're here to try to get the best proposals we can. So we're gonna work with you 
uh, in the lead up to that deadline. Yeah, you certainly do. And I can say by um, firsthand experience that you do work with grantors or grantees, I should say. So here's a, here's a true confession of one of my faux pas. About 12 years ago, one of my grant writing teams at the university, we worked very hard on a grant proposal. <clears throat> I think it was six or eight weeks of work. And we turned it in before the deadline. This was before the electronic portal, before you did things electronically. And I didn't hear anything like for months. So I finally got up enough courage and called them. And I said, uh, hey, what happened? How come I didn't hear anything? And they said, oh, is this University of Toledo? I said, it is. Well, you failed to follow instructions. We specified 11-point aerial font. And you used 12-point font Times New Roman. I said, oh, no. We didn't even review your proposal, they said. So that really hurt. I had to go back with a red face. And uh, I had to tell my team that, oops, you know, we didn't follow instructions. They very specifically said they wanted 11-point aerial font. So I'm glad to hear that those online submissions take away that variable anyway. Let's talk about submitting a proposal late after a deadline. Do you get people that say, uh, can I have more time? Can I have an extension? We do. Uh, in fact, I had two phone calls this week asking about a deadline that, that had passed. So yes, unfortunately, it does happen. There's not a whole lot of flexibility from a grant maker's side on, on these deadlines. One of our policies or practices here, uh, it's not across the board for every funder, but uh, we always tell folks, if you're having trouble submitting the application, leave us a voicemail or send us an email, something that we can reference that shows you are having a challenge before the actual deadline occurred. Because things are online now, we set that, that time and that date for it to close, and it closes automatically. And if we don't have some kind of record that you were experiencing a challenge, then we really don't have a whole lot of, of, of ways of going back uh, and undoing a deadline. But if we have that record, we try to be as flexible as we can. We can't give you, you know, months and months beyond the deadline, but usually we can correct the error, give you a chance to get that submitted, but only if we have that contact beforehand. So that's really important to, to reach out and, and let folks know. Yeah, um, I would say you are the exception to the rule in that most are hard and fast about deadlines. And um, I, I even had one I know I wrote a large $1.5 million helped write a $1.5 million grant for a church. And they said applications are due by Sunday, September 10th. Well, when I see the word by September 10th, it means by midnight, which is the next morning of September 10th. So I called those I was working with. I said, did you guys see that? Did you see it by September 10th? I said, no, we think that means like the next day. I said, no, it says bye, right? So we didn't get the grant, but I need to go back to them and tell them about cleaning up their language because you don't say bye September 10th unless you mean like by September 10th, right? So, so Tim, that's a, that's a funny story because we as a, as a department internally went around and around about grant deadlines and how we, 
how we state that. And what we landed on was 11.59 p.m. of the, the specific date because, you know, it, people will read things and two people can read the same thing and, and see something different on each of those. And I should make a note here. The, the reason that we are so strict about deadlines, uh, it's not it's not arbitrary. There is actually quite a bit of work that goes on post deadline and it involves multiple people, both internally and externally. So we have a lot of due diligence and research that we have to do to make sure everything's uh, in line and appropriate. The way that we run our committees is we have volunteer committees that that review everything, uh, that make recommendations. You know, they have the staff do research on different projects, and then they make recommendations to our board of trustees. It's our board of trustees who ultimately approves or declines everything that comes in. But all of those tasks are are laid on top of each other and on pretty strict timelines for us. The other side of that is um, just the the idea of being fair to, to everybody that's out there, to all the different nonprofits, uh, to, to make sure everybody's on the same playing field. Nobody is, is getting an advantage. We don't want our community. I mean, we're here for good. We're a community foundation. We're always going to be here. We certainly don't want any kind of reputation that we're playing favorites with one organization over another. We're very careful about that. Yeah, that's very good. Um, you know, this organization that said by Sunday, September 10th was a very large national organization. And I thought even they should specify the time zone, right? right? Because there are people all over the country submitting from the Pacific time zone in California, central time zone in Chicago, eastern time zone, which would be us. I mean, they should have specified, like you said, 11.59 p.m. by eastern time or central time, whatever. So... What have you seen, Patrick, about abbreviations in grant proposals? Um, do you see a lot of things where the grant writer assumes you, you you guys know what they mean? We do. Unfortunately, we do see that quite a bit, um, and, and that that can be challenging. There's there's certainly a an art form to to writing a proposal because you do want it to be simple enough that anybody who happens to be on a review committee can understand what you are trying to do, uh, how you're laying out your evaluation. All those things are really important to make it concise and clear, uh, but you also want to portray that you are an expert in this work. So there is a certain level of sophistication that you want to write with as well. And we all do it. We all have jargon. We all have abbreviations, things that we don't even think about anymore. We just assume everybody knows what they are. Uh, so that's that. the last thing you want is for a reviewer to be reading something and be unclear of what you are trying to say, because now you are assuming and putting your faith fully in that person to go out and do the legwork for you to do the research and they should but not everybody does you're asking a lot of them when they're reviewing dozens and dozens of proposals to do extra research to understand your proposal it's really incumbent on the grant writer and the organization to make that as clear as possible yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, I think that the thing that grant writers forget many times is how busy reviewers are. 
Um, these are professional people. They're reviewing perhaps hundreds of grants, even at the federal level. I know that they sit around the table and you have maybe 10 or 12 and you present to the group the ones you think are the strongest. And so if you use abbreviations like ESG, NCHIC, APHA, in my field, I use those every day. I know what they mean. You don't, right? Um, what's ESG, Patrick? Do you know? <laughs> You're going to put me on the spot. I could come up <laughs> with something really clever. <laughs> yeah, you could. Same with APHA. I mean, people in public health don't know. They know what those mean, but people outside who are reviewing the grant don't. And so one of the errors that we try and avoid that I always talk to my students about when you're writing a grant is write it for your grandma. Write it so granny can understand. Can she understand what you mean by ESG? She doesn't know what ESG is. She doesn't know what APHA is. She doesn't know what NCHEC is. Write it for grandma. Um, so if you're just tuning in, I'm with Patrick Johnston, Vice President of Community Investments with the Greater Toledo Community Foundation. And our topic today is the most common errors made when writing a grant application. And in Patrick's case, it's a nonprofit grant application. And trust me when I say this, Patrick has seen a lot of them. He knows what he's talking about. So Patrick, what else have you seen out there? Oh, I've seen a lot, uh, Tim. Uh, you know, to the to the conversation we were just having about um, not assuming the expertise of the, the reader, something else I would caution people about is assuming that the reviewers share your values, whatever those values might be. I've seen people write proposals and they just assume the person that's on the other side of the desk thinks exactly like they do. And so they don't they don't always lay out all the facts because they think it's just it's just known that this is a this is an issue or this is the right way to do something and quite frankly it's not as as a grant writer your job is to put together a case you're you're a persuasive writer uh, and you have to put that on paper and and really walk the the reviewer through what you are trying to say um and that that can be done in a lot of different ways, but you you really shouldn't assume that that somebody shares your values. Um, I mean, I guess I can I can pepper you with a with a couple of things, um, you know that that we've seen or or advice that that I would give to people. Um, one on the budget, uh, I always tell people, you know, if you're putting together a budget, you want to build your budget around the program that you want to implement and the impact that you want to have. You don't want to build your budget around what the maximum amount for a specific grant might be um, or the minimum amount. You should do that research and understand what each of your asks is able to do. But your best chance of getting funded is to put together a solid case. I mean, you need to lay out what the need is. You need to lay out what your implementation is. And it may be that you're going to have to find multiple sources to fund this thing. But if you're going to a funder and saying, we're going to make this impact in the community, here's what we need to do it. If you try to do it on the cheap and cut corners, then you're not going to get the results that you promised. And now all you've really done is uh, inserted a level of doubt in that funder the next time that, that you come in and apply. 
So you certainly shouldn't ask for more than what they're willing and state that they will provide, but, but definitely make sure that you're putting your project together with the resources that it needs and then be clear with them. If, you know, we always ask every applicant that, that comes in, we say, well, what if, what if we only fund this partially? What if we don't fund it at all? What does that mean to this program that you've just laid out that is so needed in the community? And you, you should have a good answer to that. You, know, you should be asking multiple sources you know, for more money than you need because not all of those dollars are going to come in. I think another... Yeah, as, I, oh, sorry. <clears throat> as I teach grant writing to my students, I say for every grant you submit, you probably should expect three no's before you get one yes. Yeah. So... And the dollars that are allocated for health have shrunk a lot, and the time has shrunk a lot. And, you know, federal and state reviewers are doing that on purpose because they want to only give the money to those that can carry it out, right? And if you have to scramble from scratch and you don't have any grant parts or pieces together, it's going to take you more than the time that they've given. Let's talk about poor editing, Patrick. Do you see... Spell spelling errors, grammar errors, those kinds of things. Poor, just poor editing, poor writing quality. Yeah, we we do, um, and they that can be distracting, um, you know. And it it does, you know, whether you whether it should or not, it does um, kind of paint an organization in a certain light. You know, you might as a reader think, well, they're they are not checking their work they are not being mm-hmm. um, you know fastidious they're not they're not they're not being careful and do you do you want to make a grant to an organization that either doesn't have the time to read something or doesn't have the capacity to have a second person on staff uh, look it over um, you know to, to this topic I you know we have this conversation not, not a lot but but sometimes with with grants, uh, it's it's different than asking for a donation. Asking for a donation is a very emotional thing, right? You can mm-hmm. you can present a case to to a donor. You can you can really make them believe in the need and and what you're doing, and and you can you can tap on their their heartstrings a little bit. Grant writing is technical. Um, you know, you, the the reader wants to know that it's going to have an impact, and but but they're not making emotional decisions. They're looking at a pile of applications. They're trying to see who's making the best case. Like where where are these dollars going to have the the biggest impact? So it's very technical in in reviewing, and not necessarily technical in the sense of if you misspell too many words or your grammar's off. I mean, like I said, that can be distracting. But if there's not internal cohesion um, within a proposal that that that's a problem because you're reading this and you're you're cross-checking things you're these sections of the grant all mean something and they are not on an island so you know you have your purpose and need you have your implementation if your evaluation plan doesn't directly show that your implementation is being carried out and is having the impact that you say it's going to have to meet that purpose and need, if that's not crystal clear when somebody reads it, that's a that's a big red flag. If you, you know, again, the the attachments, we have people submit their financials. We look at those and we look at what their sustainability plan is. So if your sustainability plan is talking about one thing, but then we look at your financials and that's not actually 
what you're currently doing or you don't know, um, you don't appear to know um, the right information, then that's also a big red flag. All these things cross over from one to another. I mean, if you spend all of your time describing how great your staff is and their, their quality and their work, and then you get to the budget and there's nothing in there for personnel, your budget is just to buy a minivan, you know, then you've made this great case about your work, but you didn't actually tell them what the need was for this particular grant and put it in a, a good framework, an ecosystem to understand that. I think those kinds of logical connections from one grant section to another uh, is something that reviewers will keep with them longer than, you know, maybe the, the misspelled words and, and things like that. So those should be cleaned up. You should have somebody to help out with that. It's, it's grant writing is not an individual pursuit. It's a, it's a village to make a good grant proposal. Yeah, I agree. And I think you said it well in, in, in bad editing or poor editing is distracting. Like you have to wade through all these mistakes to try and determine what the person really need, what they mean. Um, it's, it's a distraction and it's cumbersome to swim through all that garbage. And so you should write cleanly without typos, without grammatical errors, in my opinion, you know, write cleanly. And let's talk about doing poor research. Um, we've had a couple of clients that, that say that, for instance, well, I shouldn't say because I, you know, I put somebody on the spot. Let me say that they want to do A, but they haven't researched it. And they don't even know if A will be acceptable to the party population. They don't know if A will be used by people that they say will use it, but they want to do it. They want to do it. They want to do it. That's in their mind. And they, and they write grant after grant for it. And they haven't done any needs assessment or market research to even know. Do you see that? Do you see uh, research not being done, not making a case for what they're what they're proposing? Yeah, I would say you know you're you started off with follow the instructions. I would say do the research is is a close second to that. I mean that's a close second. Yeah, you you really you have to do it, and you have to do it from a couple of different angles. So. In, in your example, which was a good one, um, the other thing they weren't doing is um, making sure that somebody else wasn't already doing it, right? So as especially as a community foundation, I mean, we are receiving proposals from every nonprofit in the area. We know who is doing what. And the, the quickest way to get a decline is if the reviewers think that it's duplicative. Unfortunately, yeah. there's only so much money to go around and, and we have to make really hard decisions. Every no hurts. There's no bad programs out there. I mean, and they'll all do some good, but you you really have to weigh it um, to understand it from our side. So the research from the organizations is, is critical. See who else is doing it. Um, if they're doing something similar, then you really have to show the gap. And, and you can do that. Um, somebody that's already doing the work may not be doing it in the neighborhood that you want to do it in, or they may not have the cultural competency to reach the audience that you're gonna reach with it. Very important to see that. You should also do the research on on the funder. You know, what have they, what have they supported in the past? Um, we try to be clear with our guidelines. What do we want to support? Do, do that research. You can look it up. Um, you know, we put everything on our website. Every time we have a competitive grant round, we do a press release. We post it on our website. We've made it as easy as we can. We have 
newsletters that are posted. We have our annual report. You can you can read about these things, and then you can call us. You, know, you can run ideas past us. And what we always do is we tell folks if they're eligible that they can always apply. But we will tell them from our experience. You know, we've seen a proposal just like this. You know, it really wasn't a priority, or we've seen a project like this. Even better, we we consider ourselves a, a, a learning institution as well. So if somebody else has tried something very similar, we're collecting reports, midterm reports, uh, end of, of project reports, and we ask people to tell us what were the challenges, what were what was really successful. So if somebody comes to us with a similar program, before they've ever even submitted a proposal, we can tell them, you know, this is a good idea. Here are here are some hurdles you may run into. So and so organization ran into those. You know, in fact, you might want to talk to that organization and you know, there could be a collaborative project here. So yeah, re- research is is really, really important. So if the grant writer wants to serve Hispanics, let's say, and they haven't made partnerships with other entities in town that are serving Hispanics, that would probably be a mistake, right? Probably, um, yeah. And, and that doesn't mean... It doesn't always mean that that has to be a partner in the, in the work, right? It could be, and, and we usually reward that. We like collaborative proposals, uh, but it could just be as simple as reaching out to them. You know, have a meeting, and see, talking, having yeah, a phone conversation. Exactly, and and note that in your proposal. That's the other mistake that we see people make is they omit important information and. And we do research, but we don't have the capacity to do research on every application that comes in. So, again, you want to tell that reader, you know, as much as you can, make it clear. If you think that it, somebody could see it as duplicative, if you think somebody's going to look at it and say, well, they didn't even reach out to this other organization that's serving that population. Just note, just note it in your purpose and need that it only has to be a sentence or two. Um, but give some indication, then the reader will at least say, you know, I want to know more about the research they did. Or they'll say, this seems like sufficient research. And now you've you've avoided that pitfall. Yeah, I appreciate that, that good advice. Let's talk about asking for a specific amount of money. Um, you know, my students in public health, they write a grant application in one of my classes, and they always seem to beat around the bush they don't come out and tell me what exactly they need. Uh, do you see that, Patrick, in any of your applications? People just don't ask for the amount of money that they really need. It's, it's a it's a great point, uh, and it it can go it can go both ways. I would say honestly, what we see more is if we list a maximum request amount, then ninety five percent of the requests will come in for that exact amount. Uh, and, yep. and sometimes that's what a project costs, but usually it's it's not that we don't hit it right on the head. You know, if we're say up to twenty five thousand, it's it's pretty amazing how many cost exactly twenty five thousand. Now, <laughs> you know, we don't need to know down to the penny necessarily, but if if we look at your project budget and it's it's specific enough that we can really see, yeah, they've they've done some research on what this is going to cost. Either they've done it in the past and they know the exact cost, or you know, they have a reasonable explanation of why they think it's going to cost this much. Now, I can only speak for us. I'm, I can't speak for all funders, but 
for Greater Toledo Community Foundation, when we make a grant and when we read a proposal, we do a lot of pilot projects. So these are these are brand new projects. People aren't going to know exactly what it's going to cost. And, and real life happens when you start to actually do a project and you realize, oh, I thought I was going to need this much for personnel. But in fact, what I need is more supplies to keep this to keep this running. That's okay. Uh, just because you submitted a budget, uh, we understand that. And again, communication is is the big thing here. So once a project is running, we want to know. I mean, if things are going great, you don't have to call us every week. But if something happens and you think, oh, no, I, I think I need to move some money around from one line item to another. If it's a large percentage of money, call us. We have a process to amend grant agreements um, certainly don't start spending outside of an approved line item. That's the worst thing you can do is decide, oh, we thought we needed personnel. Really, we need a truck. We didn't put a truck in our original budget, but we got the money. Let's buy the truck. Don't do that. Reach out to us. Um, and usually there's a way that we can work with organizations and, and be able to amend what they thought. You know, it was it was a, a logical um, assumption and, and, you know, what they thought it was going to cost. But things do turn out to be different. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the sustainability plan of grants because I know that's becoming even more important. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this podcast is called Grassroots Health for a Reason. Uh, it's because of my belief that things that come from the people, from the ground up, are most sustainable. They last the longest. Um, what has been your experience in sustainability plans or grants? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. It's one of probably one of the hardest questions for a lot of folks to answer on on a, a grant application. What do I put for sustainability? I can tell you what you shouldn't put is just say we're going to keep looking for grants, um, and yeah. we, we do get that uh, that simple of an answer. We're going to keep looking for grants and applying for them. And that's a, that's a fine plan, but you want to be more detailed than that. So, you know, if, if that is your plan, tell the, the reader that you've done the research. You know, we've identified this, this, and this grant. We think that we would be a high priority because we're doing this, this, and this. Even better is if you can say, uh, if you fund this proposal, we're going to be able to gather data that's going to make our future proposal to X funder stronger because this is what they're interested in. So that's one way to get at it. You know, from the grassroots side, um, partner partnerships and collaborations are are great. So when when you and I first met, um, at least I think it's when we first met, uh, you were collaborating with another organization. And I think the other organization mm -hmm. was the lead applicant, but they needed somebody who was, had expertise in evaluation and that kind of planning. And, you know, that relationship grew from there. It, it, it became more than just one organization providing a service for another organization. There actually became the opportunity to um, do some, some shared staffing, some different things like that, different opportunities. That's what makes sustainability is when you can find other organizations that are doing something very well and they complement what you're doing. And then uh, it can go both ways. That that partnership, the other organization is gonna gonna include you on their future work because you're helping them to have impact. And so that's a good that's a good approach for grassroots. The other 
The other thing as I'm, I'm speaking, um, that's, I think, really important for, for grassroots, especially smaller organizations, organizations that don't have as much experience, you know, maybe have the passion and know what the need is, um, but aren't, you know, aren't well established in the nonprofit world, which is its own world and it has its own norms and its own expectations. I think a really good advice is to seek out technical assistance, seek out capacity building opportunities when they arise. I know your audience is is beyond Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, so um, but I but I do want to note at least here we have uh, an entity called the Center for Nonprofit Resources, and they do all kinds of free workshops. They have. Uh, certificate programs that folks can go through, real high-quality certificate programs. The director will do one-on-one technical assistance um, with organizations. We'll actually meet with them, help them out with things like human resources and, and budgeting and a lot of the areas that somebody with a passion to make a difference in the world doesn't usually go into it and say, you know, I, uh, you know, I really want to do human resources and fundraising. They they want to do the service, but but. The Center for Nonprofit Resources helps to strengthen those things. And that's really where sustainability comes from, is, is learning those lessons. And I know there are other organizations out there. So if you're not close enough to take advantage of our Center for Nonprofit Resources, uh, look around. There's probably somebody close to you that, that you can go to to get that technical assistance and, and do different workshops. Yeah, thanks for that reminder and that offer. I, I really appreciate it. On this episode of Grassroots Health, I've been talking with Patrick Johnston. He's Vice President of Community Investments for the Greater Toledo Community Foundation. Our topic today has been the most common errors that people make when writing a grant application. So let me ask you, Pat, um, I want you to look into your crystal ball, maybe caked with two inches of mud, but look into your crystal ball anyway and into the future uh, what grants do you have available for community organizations that are involved in improving people's health or quality of life? Um, where should they look? That kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's that's great. So we, as a community foundation, we have a lot of opportunities because, as I mentioned earlier, we represent a lot of different funders. Um, hardest question I get is when people say, what are your priorities right now? Because we have a lot of them and they change from one opportunity to the next. Um, I also mentioned it's our 50-year anniversary. So our, our first year, I think we granted out a total of $1,400. Um, and now we grant out uh, over $20 million a year. So there's That's always... Amazing. It's great. So there's always new opportunities coming down the line. Uh, we have annual grant opportunities that are like clockwork. Our community impact and community builder have two deadlines a year. Uh, So that's January 15th and July 15th. And we have others like that. So we have a core of about a dozen, maybe 15 grants. And we put them on our website and we we put them in not just when they're open, but we started uh, putting them up as upcoming opportunities. So folks could look at that and see what the new grants were. Um, I know we're going to have some coming online before the end of this year that deal with grassroots actually and and neighborhood focused grants um, some new opportunities that are coming up there so I really encourage everyone to go to our website and check it out uh, I'm not sure you have enough time for me to run through all of our opportunities but they vary and community foundations are like that so we have one grant that 
that just funds transportation costs to get to a Toledo Mud Hens baseball game. And then the, at the same time, we'll have one that's open that will support um, costs to merge two organizations, you know, legal costs to merge two organizations. We have another one that's for pilot projects, for new and innovative programs focused on all, all different kinds of priority areas, others that are just for kids programs. And the ones that I just listed off the top of my head, not by name, but by description, those are annual opportunities. So, you know, there is there is something for all organizations. Um, but of course, it's that diversity of funding sources. I would say when you're looking at grants, you're looking at trying to do something outside of your normal operating budget. That's usually that's the best way to look at grants. It's like the icing on the cake, so to speak. Um, you have a new idea you want to try out. You don't want to take away from your general operating funding to do that, right? Because you're already serving a community. It's important the work you're doing. But you say, I think we could do it better or differently if we try something new. Go and look for a grant opportunity. We have grants just like that. And we will take the chance. We'll be the risk capital for the nonprofit world. You, you make a good persuasive argument that you're going to have impact and that you're going to be able to measure it and that by us funding year one or year two of this new initiative then you're going to have great impacts that it'll lead to your sustainability those are the kind of things that we're we're looking to fund and then you can do it without having to take away from your your regular operations so give me the website one more time it's uh, toledocf.org so cf as in community foundation and you can just so Toledo. Toledo is T O L E D O C F dot org. So, would you accept a application from a group like in Tucson, Arizona? Actually, we would um, for the right opportunity. So, um, as I mentioned, most of our grants are for our area, but we also serve the donors who start funds here. So, one that comes to mind right away with that example is the First Solar Corporate Charitable Fund. Uh, which has three deadlines every year. They're a they're actually the largest uh, solar panel manufacturer, I think, in the Western Hemisphere, definitely in the United States. Um, and they have a factory here in Northwest Ohio, and their headquarters are in Arizona, but they're all over the world. So um, with their corporate social responsibility, they're really focused on organizations that are looking at green education initiatives and renewable energy technologies so yes, if, if, a, if folks are interested in doing that kind of work and they're in Arizona, they would be eligible for that for that particular opportunity. We have a couple like that. To, That's the exception, though, that, that proves the rule. They would write it for Northwest Ohio, though, right? Nope. They could write it for activities no? in Arizona. Actually, that fund okay. um, is an international grant maker. So we have funded overseas projects there as well. Oh, and, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So we we are we have options where um, you know for some some grants, not all of them, uh, just a couple will will consider uh, overseas NGOs, and then we have a process for our due diligence that we can do what's called an equivalency test, uh, and we have to do a lot more research. So again, that this is what's going on behind the scenes after a proposal is is submitted is that we're taking the steps and looking at each of those and what they are and, and making sure they're eligible. So yeah, you can you can come to us, but I would say, I mean, it's gotta be 90% or so of our grants are Northwest Ohio, Southeast Michigan. And yeah, that's what I was thinking that the majority were from the Toledo area or Southeast Michigan. Definitely. 
So let me see if I can summarize. Uh, follow instructions, number one. Mm-hmm. Do the research, number two. We talked about writing cleanly without mistakes. We talked about you know doing a needs assessment or making partnerships, talking to people that serve the same clients that you want to serve, maybe partnering with them or at least have a phone conversation with them. We talked about not making your budget go right up to the hilt. If they say, we're going to give $40,000 for this and you make it thirty-nine <laughs> it's pretty obvious what you're doing, right? Don't, don't do that, especially if you're a new if you're a new grant writer, you have, you don't have a track record of awards with them. Don't don't take it up to the hill. Have I missed any main things, Patrick? Um, you know, there's only one other thing I, I would add that just dawned on me, and it, this is a very common mistake: is that an organization will put together a grant proposal, and it's it's something that you referenced earlier, based on their needs, right? So they put together yeah. a grant proposal. And then they just fire that thing off to every open opportunity. And yep. the vast majority of those, it's not going to be a priority and it's not sometimes not even going to be eligible. So every now and again, you might hit and, and get a grant, but you have to remember that all those others that are declined, you are presenting your organization not in the best of lights. You are making the reviewers doubt your abilities if you are not taking the time to understand you know, what that is. So that goes to, to research, and we see that a lot here because we have so many different opportunities and staff sees that. Uh, we see every proposal that comes in, so we know if Organization X is just sending the same thing out over and over and over again. While it may be what your organization needs, it's not setting you up for future success. Yeah, thank you for that. Today, I've been talking to Patrick Johnston, Vice President of the Community Investments of the Greater Toledo Community Foundation. Patrick, thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure.